The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Well, Paul, we're back. This is the Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Waddle here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Paul, how are you doing tonight? Matt, I'm great. It's been a while since we've recorded. I'm, I'm glad to be able to spend time with you again. I've missed you. It has been. It's been uh, the audience probably hasn't missed a beat, but it's been about a month since you and I have recorded. On tonight's show, we are going to discuss nutrition uh, and, and how to use a plant-based diet to really treat treat chronic disease with the great Dr. Michelle McMacken, who we talked about at our ACP recap show, Paul, if you if you don't. You, do you remember that, Paul? It's I mean, been, I was there, certainly. While. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I was in a few, uh, I was in like a, a fugue state from COVID-19 infection, but I, I still re- vaguely remember this talk. And this is when we were talking to you and your head was in, we, we were talking to you via iPhone on an iP- on a tripod. Is yeah, that, yeah, I was, good stuff. Chris had me like duct taped to like some sort of apparatus. So I was like a talking head in the room. Yeah, it was great. Well, Paul, uh, before you introduce our co-host and we re- tell you a little more about our guest, Paul, can you remind people, what is it that we do on the Curbsiders? Sure. I'll see if I remember how to do this, Matt. We are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. As you mentioned, we are joined by another co-host and the producer of this episode, Dr. Deep Shah. Deep, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to help produce this time. Yeah, deep. And the audience may remember you. You were on some of our health policy episodes way back when. I don't remember. It's at maybe 200 episodes ago or so. But now you're back here because you're a primary care doc. You run a shop. You see your own patients. And this is something you deal with every day. So why don't you tell them a little bit about what they're going to hear on this episode and then introduce our guest. Yes, I made a point of it to be your least memorable guest, so uh, no problem. But I'm I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to discuss nutrition as a disease-modifying therapy, a term I coined myself. Uh, we have a terrific conversation in store with you with Dr. Michelle McMacken, who is Executive Director of Nutrition and Lifestyle Medicine at New York City Health and Hospitals. She is double board certified in internal medicine and lifestyle medicine. She has been a practicing primary care doctor at Bellevue Hospital for the past 18 years, where she also teaches residents and medical students. She is passionate about nutrition in clinical practice, especially in underserved communities. Dr. McMacken loves lentil tacos and overnight oats and is a real sucker for dark chocolate. So without further ado, let's get to it. You know, Paul, I forgot to ask her about dark chocolate too, but Paul, I I did have a pun that I wanted to try try out on you. So are you ready? Yep, great. Build it up. <laughs> <laughs> I spent a lot of time coming up with this, Paul, uh-huh. as you know. I uh, So anyway, Paul, have you heard about this amazing, amazing corn? It's like the best in the country. I, I have not heard about this corn. Matt, why don't you tell me more about it? Paul, they tell me it's irresistible. <laughs> <laughs> Just for the audience at home. The mics are still on, by the way. <laughs> All right. Thanks to uh, 60vegetablepuns.com for that. <laughs> and uh, 
Oh, gosh. Your Google searches must be a nightmare. I just can't even imagine. (laughs) Okay. A reminder that this and most episodes will be available for free CME credit for all health professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Dr. McMacken did not report any conflicts of interest except maybe hoping that Big Big Broccoli will contact her soon, Paul. Okay, still, I guess Paul's mic. <laughs> Paul, wow, Paul's, Paul's wow, mic Matt. is not you're, working. Hey, you're <laughs> totally here. You can help out here too, buddy. <laughs> All right, let's get to the show. Well, Paul, we've had our twentieth technical difficulty, <laughs> and uh, you think it's time to start now? We're doing great. I think it's time to start. Yeah. So, Michelle, uh, I've been a fan for a while now. I saw you at ACP this year, and I know a couple years ago at ACP you were there as well, and like everyone was talking about your talk. So we're like, obviously, we have to have you on the show. We're going to get into that, but how do you describe yourself uh, when you're given a one-liner or if you're meeting a new person? Can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for the kind words, and I'm really excited to be here. I, you know, I don't describe myself with one-liners very often, but if I had to, I would probably say, you know, I'm a primary care doctor first and foremost. Um, outside of work, I, I love the summer, and this is the time of year where I start kind of getting a little depressed because it's the end of August and everyone else is excited about fall, and I just can't let go of the summer. I love cats. Um, I have two cats, uh, house plants. I love taking, you know, it's been sort of a habit since COVID, but going on like epic long walks and listening to like tons of podcasts. So you guys are on that list, of course. Um, and kind of probably surprisingly, I am kind of a rabid football fan, which a lot of people are surprised to hear. I'm from uh, Baltimore, and I'm a huge Baltimore Ravens fan. So I hope I'm I'm probably really offending a lot of people with that, <laughs> like some Steelers fans out there. So I'm sorry, you guys. We don't talk about sports enough on this. Paul, what's your team again? <laughs> I, I don't have one. Uh, I'm, I'm from York, Pennsylvania originally. So we actually, there's a fair cohort of Ravens fans there. There's, nice. yeah, Steelers fans, Eagles fans. They're very, it's a... It's a confusing people um, there in York, so we yeah we don't have a whole lot of loyalty. <laughs> Knowing you, Paul, I can attest to the confusing. Uh, you're a confusing person sometimes, right? right. And the absence of loyalty, also fair. <laughs> so, Michelle, my my typical question is, I like to ask about any sort of piece of culture that you've consumed recently that you would recommend to our audience, and it doesn't have to be medical. It can be fiction, nonfiction, book, movie, shoot the moon. What's what's something you've enjoyed lately that'll help me broaden my horizons? Well, I mean, I'm so sorry to do this, but I have to bring up like I just have to bring up a show, which is Succession. Have you any of you guys seen it? We started it and it was too intense for my significant other. So we decided to switch and watch Food Network every night. Um, So we're pretty much only watching Guy Fieri right now. Exclusively, I don't know. He's got great frosted tips, so you know. I mean, he does, and he supports a lot of small businesses, so you, yeah, you can't lose. Yeah. Well, uh, Michelle, I haven't watched. I've heard great things, and uh, if it's uh, like like with Deep, it's a little tough to get my wife to watch anything that's not like a romantic comedy. So uh, you know, but I maybe someday it's on my list. Yeah, we have a lot of gore watching in this house. Like, I guess it goes with like the football side of me, um, not the house plants and cats and summertime side of me. So, 
All right. Great answer. Deep, anything you wanted to ask before we get on to talking about some nutrition here? So I would just like to ask Michelle uh, if you have any advice you've received that has really stuck with you and any of the other hosts would like to share, you're welcome to as well. One of the things that I think I've learned is every time I try to practice any other way than the way I practice, I get in trouble. So for example, I, I never cut corners, like I'm obsessive and I'll be that person that's like in clinic until like seven o'clock, you know, like checking things. And I, whenever I start to see myself cutting corners, inevitably something happens where I'm like, okay, that's not a good outcome. Like I I just have to accept that this is how I practice. Um, So that's the sort of check yourself before you wreck yourself that I come from is like, just, just do, you know, make sure you're not like taking things, you're not taking things too lightly. Cause for me, that just doesn't work. Um, And I think the other, you know, the, the piece of advice that I, um, that I've gotten is it works for life in general, not just medicine is like basically just try to be nice to everyone, not just because it's nicer for the world, but because you probably will end up needing some of those people later on. I don't know if you guys have ever had that experience where I'm like, that person's really, you know, I'm really frustrated with this person and I just want to kind of say something or lash out. And then, you know, two years later, I like actually have to ask that person a favor. So, um, so that's, that's worked well for me too, just to kind of take it easy with folks. I think that's fantastic advice. And we, we want to learn a lot about how you practice, specifically counseling your patients about, you know, healthier lifestyle. So let's, let's get to a case. Now a word from our sponsor, Better Help. Folks, our entire job circles around solving problems. And often you're sort of tasked with solving multiple problems. And there's lots of times where I'll see a list of problems in front of me so long, I don't know where to start. And I can fall into analysis paralysis and really sort of struggle with where to begin and even initiating going into problem-solving mode. But when you finally turn that corner and you start thinking more about actually fixing those problems, there's almost no better feeling. And one of the things that can kind of help you organize your thoughts and even your emotions to some extent to help you start focusing on problems might be therapy. Folks, I've said it before, I will continue to say it, we live in really stressful times and we are often faced with a multitude of problems. And For some, therapy can help you organize your thoughts, it can help you organize your emotions, it can get you in a space where you can start focusing on solutions. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp might be a great option. It is convenient, accessible, affordable, and it's entirely online. You get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey, and you can switch therapists at any time. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Curb today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Curb. Deep, you want to read the first case? Absolutely. So I'm going to talk to you about Ivan. He is a 44-year-old, generally healthy mechanic from Croatia uh, who moved to the U.S. about 20 years ago and is following up after wellness labs. Uh, They were required for his part-time job as a school bus driver. Labs resulted with an LDL of 161, triglycerides 189, total cholesterol 235, HDL 36, and an A1C of 7.1%. Ivan is skeptical about the labs themselves. Um, he's a healthy person and very active in addition to his work. He mountain bikes on the weekends and raises four healthy children with his wife, Helena, who generally cooks at home for the family. He rarely eats out. 
Their diet consists of eggs, berries, homemade breads, organic potatoes, and fresh meats from a local butcher. Ivan's family rarely eats desserts. So this has got to be the most common follow-up that I see in my clinic, uh, patients like Ivan after a wellness visit. And so I just wanted to start with a very basic question. And if you'll indulge me, no no pun intended, uh, what is evidence-based nutrition? Well, I think there's, you know, it's important to recognize that there's a huge, I mean, truly enormous body of literature around nutrition science. And I think we, you know, as physicians, most of us are not really exposed to that literature. And I know that when I first became exposed to it, I was astounded at how much was there. And so there's, you know, there's all different types of studies in nutrition. There's feeding studies, there's metabolic ward studies, there's randomized controlled trials, there's prospective cohort studies, and each with their own advantages and disadvantages. And and I think the point that I always make around evidence-based nutrition is that you really are, you really want to look for where you start to see overlap um, in terms of findings between different types of studies and also across different populations. So, so I think that you know, this is not, we're not talking about something that, you know, use something that's just come up recently for which there's not much data. We're talking about themes that have been around in the nutrition science literature for, you know, decades or longer. So every few years we'll hear about a new diet that has really good evidence. And when I first came out of training and I was in training, it was a Mediterranean diet. And since I've been practicing, there's a lot of discussion about whole food, plant-based diets, And I think what you're suggesting is what I'm hoping is uh, the answer, that there are unifying themes. And at this point, we have enough literature to tell the practicing internist, you don't need to know all the details about each of these diets. So if you could walk us through what are some of the unifying themes when we think about cardiovascular risk reduction, uh, glycemic control, cancer risk reduction. I think those are the top three that I hear about um, with what to look for with diets. Um, So how do we navigate everything that's out there? Yeah. So you said that, um, you just said that perfectly deep. So basically, you know, I think that the themes revolve around thinking about like, you know, really the most, the foods that are, you know, unequivocally health promoting for which the evidence is extraordinarily compelling um, and consistent that they're health promoting are foods such as you know whole fruits, um, so not not juices but fruits in their whole form, vegetables of you know wide variety, uh, legumes like beans, lentils, chickpeas, uh, grains that are in their more whole form. Um, that could be you know whole wheat products like whole wheat pasta or whole wheat bread, or even better the intact grain itself. So looking at brown rice or oats. Um, or barley or quinoa, and then nuts and seeds. So, you know, those are the categories of foods that there's really not very much controversy about. It's very hard to find a study showing harm of any of those foods. And so that's kind of a slam dunk with those. And I think that, you know, the other the other big theme are the foods that we know we have really, really strong evidence that they tend to increase the risk of disease. So processed meats being, you know, a huge one. So Meats that are, you know, either red, red meats or white meats, but any kind of meat that's been processed in any way. So it has added salt or it's been smoked or fermented 
um, or has added preservatives, these are these are there's an extraordinary amount of evidence that these increase the risk of a variety of different types of cancer, particularly colorectal cancer. They increase the risk of heart disease and um, whether it's coronary heart disease or heart failure, they markedly increase the risk of type two diabetes. Um, so those are that's that's quite clear, and all the guidelines are in consensus about that. Um, unprocessed red meats to a lesser degree. You can probably find some folks saying that they don't think there's a problem with unprocessed red meats, but we do know that they're linked to higher risk of cancer and diabetes and heart disease. So I would probably say they still belong in the not health promoting category. Added sugars. I mean, you don't, there's, it's very hard to find anyone who will argue with that in this day and age. So drinking a lot of sugar sweetened beverages, um, having a lot of sweets, you know, really just exceeding um, a safe amount of added sugar in your day. And then finally, refined grains and ultra processed foods. So basically foods that, you know, so a refined grain is basically starts out as a whole grain and most of the fiber is removed. Um, it's a very simple carbohydrate that rapidly, you know, pushes your blood sugar up. It's also linked to uh, to weight gain, to uh, heart disease, to type 2 diabetes, um, and ultra-processed foods being foods that are very, very uh, hyper-palatable. They are calorie-dense. They don't have a lot of fiber. They have additives not really found in nature. Um, but it's really the hyperpalatable part and the calorie dense part that gets us into trouble because that's a, that cross product means we can't stop eating them and we're eating a lot of calories. So as a society, that's a concern. So um, those are kind of the two broad poles. And I think I would just make a special call out to fish because um, you could make a strong argument that fish belongs in the healthy food category. It is in the guidelines for, say, the American College of Cardiology and numerous other guidelines to consume one or two servings a week of fatty fish. So those are the two kind of poles that I think about. So there's the always, the nevers, and then there's the sometimes, which it seems like you're sort of getting at with fish. And I know in some of your previous talks, you talked about eggs, me, in that sometimes category. I think all of us are familiar with, you know, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds. But in a minute, when we're talking more about Ivan again, I'd like to hear a little bit more about some of the whole grains and what that really means because that word and legumes, yeah, you know, those are even new for for me as somebody who's been interested in this topic. But I have a question for you. You mentioned the American College of Cardiology guidelines. So I remember when I was learning uh, evidence-based medicine in medical school and residency, we would talk about, you know, what's the best literature out there and, you know, does this really improve mortality? So is this definitive in the literature? And, and if it is, what kind of mortality benefit do patients who have a traditional American diet and at least start to venture over to the kind of diet you're describing, what kind of outcomes do we see and how much benefit is there? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, um, I think it's really important to recognize that what we eat is the leading risk factor for dying of a chronic disease in the United States and globally. So um, food has a huge, huge role in our mortality risk and and just in our health risk overall. Um so I think that, you know, what the, the data are pretty clear that healthier eating patterns that focus more on those um, plant-based foods that I brought up before, you know, those and less of the sort of unhealthy foods, those eating patterns can definitely, you know, these are all epidemi, you know, nutrition epidemiology studies. We're not talking randomized controlled trials for this. So, you know, this there's, it's not, we can't, 
you know, this is not necessarily causation, but we definitely see an association with uh, mortality benefit when you talk about consuming more of these healthy foods compared to the less healthy foods. So, and even even when you break it down in terms of different um, different macronutrients, so like let's say you're looking at protein and you're comparing. Um, animal sources of protein versus plant sources of protein. We have at least five very, very large prospective cohort studies from around the world showing that even just substituting very small amounts, sometimes as little as 3% of your calories of animal protein with a plant source buys you an associated mortality benefit of up to like 35% if what you're dropping is processed meat if what you're dropping is red meat, if what you're dropping is eggs. And the benefit even actually goes all the way down to dairy and poultry and other um, and other animal f- proteins that we don't necessarily think of as like the, le- you know, the, the least healthy ones. So these small swaps can make a big difference. And there's definitely a signal of a mortality benefit in the, in the nutrition epi literature. And can I get granular? Wado, do you get it? Watto. Watto, did you get <laughs> nice it? one. So, yeah, thanks. Um, so I, and, and kind of selfishly asking too, in terms of that kind of swap. So as someone who eats a largely plant-based diet, but I also eat mostly garbage. So it's a lot of like the, like the fake chicken and the fake beef and that kind of stuff. You know, is, do the, do the studies look at that type of swap out? Cause I'm imagining the swap that they're talking about is probably healthier than the swap that I have actually made, but I, I don't. Yeah. Know that's sure. so new also. Yeah. Yeah. So have they yeah, looked at sort of like yeah. the, 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 the solely synthetic made in the lab, not really resembling any actual thing found in nature is that what, what are, i think the other way of phrasing that is are all plant-based based diets made equal no i like my way <laughs> <laughs> sorry yes um, that's, that's a great way to phrase it is all garbage is all garbage equal? smelly yeah. <laughs> no i mean first of all you know you're you know we we're not, we're here to talk about nutrition but there's a there's very strong arguments to be made for what you're doing paul um because you know, there's a huge environmental impact, right, to and a benefit to doing that. Now, in terms of the actual, you know, sort of the newer sort of, there's a lot of products on the market in 2022 that you can pretty much substitute any animal food at this point. There's a huge spectrum in terms of their potential health benefits. We don't have a lot of actual outcome studies because they're too new, like Matt was saying. But what we do, if you just start dissecting them down by their ingredients, you know, there are some that are processed, but not processed in a way to become bad. So for example, if they're just using soy-based protein or pea-based protein, and they're not have, they're not high in sodium, and they're not, you know, they don't have a lot of coconut oil or other saturated fats added, that's probably fine. I think the concern becomes when you're eating those types of foods day in and day out as your primary basis of your diet, and they're high in sodium and saturated fat, then you're definitely going to have a potential concern. What we do have are studies comparing, and these are about five years old now, so they kind of predate a lot of the current animal meat you know, substitutes. But the when you focus on non-animal foods, but you're consuming juice and um, sugar-sweetened beverages and white flour and desserts, but no animal foods, your coronary heart disease risk, your diabetes risk is just as high as if you were eating an animal-based diet. So it's that's not a good swap. And you made the joke at ACP that yeah, you could eat a you could have a vegan lunch and it was like Coca Cola and a bag of M and M's or something like that, and right. And that's to illustrate the point of like. So you you saw my lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and listen, there's nothing wrong with having that lunch once in a while. Like you know, there really isn't. Yeah. 
it, this is we're talking about like what people do day in and the day out. The themes of your diet, day right. in and day out. I want to make the point too that when when you say a uh, whole food plant based diet, we're not saying that that's all that people can ever eat and that everyone has to go completely that direction and which would you know vegan diet is where you're pretty much only eating plants no animal products that's not what we're just talking about ways to ways to use this food to make some better food choices for patients because in our country there is a pretty toxic food environment which uh, has a lot of these food choices like the ultra processed foods and the the processed meats and things like that which I think most people know they should be avoiding and, uh, yeah. and and that's what we're trying to do. You know there's a fantastic person out there who will improve your business. The trick is just to find them. For a hiring partner that helps you reach new heights, you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. One especially cool thing that Indeed features is the virtual interview. You don't have to make your candidates jump through hoops. The virtual interview tool means there's nothing to download. You just click and talk. Virtual interview saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview your top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in their database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash internal medicine to start hiring now. Just go to indeed.com slash internal medicine. Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. You need to hire? You need Indeed. Should we bring it back to Ivan Deep and see what we're going to counsel him on? Yes. So, you know, when you meet a patient like Ivan, they're coming back to the clinic with a lot of skepticism about the results themselves because they don't mesh in the patient's mind with how healthy they think the diet that they're consuming might be is. Mm -hmm. I want you to, if you don't mind, put yourself in your primary care doctor's shoes and walk us through how you would approach Ivan. And if you could also mention some of the pitfalls that you see um, your colleagues and, and those of us who are less familiar with approaching this maybe make. Yeah, this is a great case. So I think I think the first thing that um, I would, you know, when I have a patient who has high cholesterol, like Ivan does, I mean, an LDL that's really significantly elevated, and I think you said 161 or so, and the um, A1C of 7.1, which is presumably a new diagnosis for Ivan, you know, in addition to just explaining what those things mean, it is, I feel, I feel like ethically it's my job as a physician to tell this patient that a, a lot of what he's experiencing can be dramatically improved with lifestyle changes, particularly nutrition. And that's not to make anyone feel, it's not to say like you have to do that. It's just to say, just so that you know, there's a lot that you can do with shifts in your diet and you're always going to be in the driver's seat. You're always going to decide how far you want to go and how quickly you want to get there. But you should know that this is possible. And I wish I had said that to more patients earlier in my, in my career, because I didn't, and I didn't, I just had never seen anyone change their diet because I hadn't tried <laughs> I hadn't talked about it with people. And then once I started talking about it with people and saying like, you really have, there's a lot that is in your control. 
and you might be scared right now. And I completely understand that we're going to talk about it. I'm going to support you. But if you make changes, you could theoretically put your diabetes in remission. And I've, and, and I'm, I'm telling you, once you see someone do that, you cannot unsee it. Yeah. I mean, if there was any other drug or therapy that had the kind of mortality benefit you're describing, you know, we would feel neglectful in the do no harm category, right? Why are you talking about anything else? That this is where we need to be focusing our a lot of time on this initial visit. But so your first step with Ivan is to level set, explain to him what the results mean, see how interested he is. And then my next step would typically be to ask the patient to describe what they eat. And this is where I, sometimes I see the patients sort of rolling their eyes. I already told you what I eat. I eat well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the first, even to even before that, I would just say, you know, I, what I do say to people is, is this something you're interested in learning more about? You know, because if if he's sitting there saying like, I really don't want to, I do not today want to talk about how I can change my diet. That is not a time for me to bring it up. That's a time for me to respect and say, okay, no problem. Like, we'll, you know, we'll, maybe next time, if you're interested, we can go there. I will say that in my practice, I've, you know, I think 80% of patients say, yes, they want to talk about it. So then I do go on to talk about what they're eating. And I, I do like to do a 24-hour recall. It is far from accurate compared to what the person actually ate 20, for the last 24 hours, but it does give you a quick snapshot of the types of foods that they probably are eating typically and where they're eating those foods. Are they cooking at home? I mean, we know Ivan is eating primarily from food cooked at home, um, but are they cooking at home? Are they eating out? And just the overall pattern of, of how the person's eating. So I will be amazed if I ask people like, what are the foods you typically like to eat versus what did you eat yesterday? There's such a wide, you know, yesterday's very concrete. And you'll learn things that you can't, you're like, okay, now I see what's going on. And so I think that's a very useful tool and it doesn't take that long. In comparing to other uh, conditions that we manage in clinic, PHQ-9, PHQ-2 is a good screen tool that sort of penetrated the primary care uh, visit. Anything you would recommend for nutrition? Yeah, I wish that there were, I wish someone would develop a really, really good validated tool for nutrition screening and primary care. And I know some people will say that they have, um, and there are some out there. I personally find them to be too long and not, not as culturally relevant for my patient population. Like I like to, I like to sort of tailor it a little bit. And my patients, mm -hmm. like if I'm, if the question is like, do you eat bagels? Like half of my patients are going to say, you know, no, I, that's not relevant for my background. So I, I know that the American Heart Association has, um, there is a recommended dietary screener. I think it's nine questions. I'm happy to share it. We can put it in the, you can put it in the notes if you want, but I don't use that. I do the 24 hour recall. Okay. So the 24 hour recall is a takeaway. Yeah. Uh, and do you have any handouts that, that you're giving patients? Cause I find, I'm not sure how long your visits are if you're doing like an hour consultation with a new patient and doing this, but in your standard 20 or 30, 15, 20, 30 minute visit, I think a lot of people have. Uh, so you ask them to do the 24 hour recall. I imagine they're not, maybe they're not doing that in that visit. Maybe they're sending that to you or filling it out when they're waiting for you. And then what are you giving them uh, when they leave for homework or handouts? Yeah, so it is. It, if you have the capacity to have the patient fill out a twenty-four hour re recall in the waiting room, that saves time. 
I usually am just asking the patient in my visits for 20 minutes and, and I'm asking them, you know, and it's usually th- it, often through an interpreter phone on top of that. Oh, so I'm asking them, you know, what did you eat yesterday? And I go through like starting from the time you woke up and we just go through the day. And, and then I ask about beverages. You always have to make sure and swing back and ask about beverages and ask about ginger ale because nobody thinks that that's soda for some reason. They think it's good for Paul, it has <laughs> ginger in it. Don't, is that, isn't that the main thing you're drinking, Paul? I mean, for me, it is. No, it's the same thing where sometimes beer is distinct from alcohol and you really do have to differentiate between those two things. I, I love that point so much. Yes. I feel like ginger ale never comes up as a soda. But, oh, no, I drink tons of ginger ale, just not soda. And you're like, I asked the question exactly. the wrong way. This is on me. That's that's such a great point. What what deep did the the deep gave this guy eggs, berries, homemade breads, which they sound uh, or potatoes that are organic and fresh meats from a local butcher. I mean, that sounds pretty healthy. So, you know, it's a tough case, but maybe he's drinking a 12 pack of beer every night or something. Well, I would say in the diet history that we got about this patient, about Ivan, he's consuming. We heard about one type of fruit, which is the berries. That's awesome. But th- those berries are carrying the rest of the diet. Like they're carrying all the weight of the rest of the diet. <laughs> so there's no no vegetables were mentioned. I'm sure he eats some vegetables. He's presumably having meat with every meal. I'm I'm gonna just guess. He you know the homemade breads are way better you know than breads that you might purchase in the store because they probably don't have added sugar. Um, but it is still if it's made you know, with white flour, that's still suboptimal to a whole grain bread. I have no problem with potatoes. So yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a little more delving that you would do. So for Ivan, for example, and this is what I do with patients, if I have time after the 24 hour recall, I will then if I haven't heard them say any vegetables or fruits in what they ate yesterday, or beans or whole grains, I will whip out my superfood sheet, which some of you may have heard me talk about before. And it, this is the most useful handout I've ever had with nutrition. Um, I, I actually put it together with a resident um, a few years ago. I'm so excited to get this. <laughs> I will send it to you. Yes, it is. I mean, honestly, it's we use it. Our whole clinic uses it. Um, it's a staple in our clinic because all it is, is just literally a list of those healthy foods that I just mentioned earlier, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds listed in English and Spanish. Like it just lists examples. And so what I do is I hand it to the patient and while I'm like putting in orders or whatever, I have them look it over and say, what, which foods on this list do you already happen to like? Cause that's where we're going to start from. I'm not going to start by telling them, please eat kale. You know, they, that might not be something that they've ever tried. So it's more like, okay, where are we starting from in terms of healthy foods that you already like? And how can we set some goals around that? And I also give them a lot of choice. So I'm not just saying, please start having, you know, a serving of vegetables every day. I, I, I give them usually like at least three options. Say that's one option. Another option is to start to shift away from the ginger ale and always, always come up with like, what are you going to have instead? Um, because I've had people switch away from soda and start drinking sweetened iced tea. And that's a rookie, a rookie error that I didn't anticipate. So now I know you've got to come up with what's the alternative but you're always giving them different options and let the key is to let the patient tell you what they're ready to work on and then make a really specific goal around it. It's that touches so on something I was going to I was having a hard time articulating is how do you have this conversation without seeming like you're attributing blame to the patient? Like it's, it's sort of the, the subtext is if you didn't eat like this, we wouldn't be in this predicament. So rather offering food as an intervention sounds like what you're doing, which I think is probably much more appealing and also obviate some of the guilt that you know, patients might be bringing into the visit. So I, I, I like the idea of having sort of options for them and, and specific interventions as opposed to 
um, prescriptive stuff. That's that's great. We're going to get back to Ivan in just a moment, but I think Watto's point about how initially it seems like Ivan has a healthy diet was the entire point of the case because it feels like we don't have a lot to offer him as as the internist. And when we hear words like organic, fresh, it seems like he's doing a pretty good job. And what I'm taking away from you in the first half of this case is that it's not what he is eating. It's the absence of a lot of these greens, the superfoods, the legumes, basically no beans at all in his diet. And those should be substituting some of the other things that he is enjoying on a three times a day basis right now. Exactly. And that, and that also gets back to um, Paul's point. So I think, you know, the crowding out strategy is much more effective than the stop eating meat strategy and stop eating this and stop doing that. That's just like a really negative downer message that nobody wants to hear. And they're going to leave the office feeling like they've messed up and their diet is bad and they're bad. It's not, you know, it's more about a you know, not to be cheesy, but it's about, so to speak, it's about abundance, right? It's about like, what can I add to my diet that I actually already happen to like or something I can try? And so I, I always try to frame it in that positive messaging. So let's get back to Ivan's. You've done this intake. He's lukewarm about embracing major diet change, but says he'll work on it. Do you establish a treatment target for that follow-up and what's your typical follow-up interval? if this was a new set of diagnoses? Yeah. So first of all, I, I think if he's not particularly you know, motivated to make changes, if he's kind of lukewarm, we will, we will set a, you know, a small goal that's appropriate for him, that feels manageable to him. And then I will be very realistic about the expectation. And I'll say, you know, when you come back, you know, if you, you know, in my practice, it's like, I'm lucky if I can see a patient back in three months, I think ideally I would see them back, you know, in two weeks or, you know, a month, that would be ideal. But in my practice, I, I can't usually. So I'd see them back in three months. And I would say your A1C and your cholesterol may not have changed much if you're not making big changes, but that's okay. Because what we're trying to do here is something that's sustainable, that works for you and your family in the long term. This is not like a crash diet situation at all, unless that's, you know, unless you really are excited about making big changes and feel that that's sustainable. This is more about like, how do we actually start to change the, the, the grooves that you, that you run in and like over time, things that you can sustain. And so I never want anyone to come back feeling bad. Like I didn't lose weight. My blood sugars doesn't change. It's like, it's, it takes time. And in, in patients that aren't super, you know, ready to make big changes, then there's definitely a role for medication. Right. And I just, I just normalize that. Like you don't have to, it doesn't have to be either or, but if you're making really big changes, a lot of times you can either avoid medication or reduce it. And going back to sort of guideline-based care for high cholesterol, new diagnosis of diabetes. It is recommended by the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, American Diabetes Association, all of these that the emphasis really should be on initial focus on nutrition as therapy for these patients. 100%. We're not being negligent by not pushing metformin at the first visit, question mark. (laughs) Hundred percent. If you look at every single guideline, it's like the pure, it's like the food pyramid. Like the base of every guideline is lifestyle. 
And we just, as physicians, we often just skip to the next rung because we don't have the time, we don't have the training, we don't have the facility. It's hard. Behavior change is like the hardest possible thing to help people do. It's so much easier just to say, here's here's your medication and see, you know, and, and come back in three months. So um, I do, you are, is completely, you are completely within the evidence to start with lifestyle and give people a chance. Now, obviously, if they're, if they have symptoms, their A1C is 12, you know, that's a very different story. And you're probably not going to just do lifestyle. Although I have had patients just do lifestyle out of their own choice in that situation and put their diabetes in remission, believe it or not. But that's not everybody. Michelle, I, I saw you included a case of someone, I think their A1C was double digits. Yep. They had a lot of room for improvement and they totally like, it was early on they were caught and they totally reversed their diabetes. I've had about I want to say these are four young men's young men in their 30s to like 40s and they had family members who died of heart disease or diabetes. They found out they had diabetes. They totally changed the way they were eating. It was a lot of just like a lot of the red box stuff like the processed refined sugars and processed carbohydrates and they cut that all out lost weight, reversed their diabetes. And a couple of them now are at two years out and they're not on medications for diabetes. I mean, people can do it if they want to. It's hard work. And I think some of them tell me that their family thinks they're like crazy because <laughs> how, how strict they've become about things. But it is, uh, it is possible and it is really, it's crazy when it happens or it just feels, it feels great so great. And a lot of these patients like self-educated. I just gave them some of these big broad points. Like it's not like I was telling them every single thing that they should be eating. Um I don't have time or expertise to be able to do that. So let's say Ivan was only ready for small steps. He rediscovered his love for chickpeas and has integrated those into his lunch diet and also stopped drinking lattes on Monday, Wednesday, Friday just substituting them for black coffee. So he comes back in four months due to a reschedule, and his repeat labs show modest improvement, A1C down uh, to 6.7% from 7.1%. His LDL is now 150. Initially, it was 161. His 10-year ASCBD is 7.4%. He mentions that his brother has insulin-dependent diabetes, and a below-the-knee amputation, which he didn't realize was from the diabetes until he disclosed his diagnosis. He said that he struggled to make more changes, wants to keep trying, but somewhat reluctant. So what do we say to Ivan now at the follow-up? I mean, listen, first of all, I would say congratulations, because his A1C came down, we said from 7.1 to 6.7. That's not nothing. That's something. And I, I will literally harness any nugget of positive change and just because people like to feel good about what they've done. So that's, that's basically, you know, my permission to say to the patient, like, this is great. Things are going in the right direction. If you want, we can push this more. If you feel ready, we can push this more. And potentially, if your diabetes goes into remission and your cholesterol gets better, you may not need medication. You know, we're dancing with, you know, this is someone who probably should be on a statin if we, you know, say he has diabetes and such elevated cholesterol and who knows, you know, and how long he's had, he's probably had a high cholesterol for many years. And so, you know, that's going to be an individual decision. But even if he goes on medication, doing the lifestyle, the nutrition piece is going to synergize with that 
and dramatically improve his outcomes, as we all know. So I keep trying to give people a chance. So it really just depends on how much he wants to do. But I always, this is a great chance for positive reinforcement. Yeah, we have a show coming up. uh, It's going to air around the same time as this one, uh, an update on lipids. And I I know that we're going to be talking about really aggressive lipid management on that one. But when you have a lot of patients in their like 30s, 40s, 50s, they they don't want to go on. If they're barely willing to make any changes, they're not going to want to take a statin every day for the rest of their life. You know, So sometimes I save that fight for another day and I try to get some of this stuff um, happening first. Uh, Paul, I don't know if you have a similar approach, but it, it sometimes starting a statin is a is a challenging thing. And if like they don't have a crazy family history or any known cardiac disease, then I, I sort of table that and see what they can do with just a lifestyle. Yeah, no, it sounds like you're doing a patient centered approach. Which <laughs> no, I'm just correct. asking your approach. Like, are you? Yeah, are no, you same coming thing. Like, I, I, same... think I, I think you have to meet every patient where they're at, and I, I think we'll we'll get into it a little bit later in the case. Is that there are some lifestyle changes um, just from an environmental standpoint are easier to make than others. And sometimes patients are more ready for statin therapy than they are to make diet change. And it kind of, it just depends on the individual patients. So I think that's, I'm just repeating what you're saying. It's sort of, you have to meet them where they are and make the changes they're yeah. willing to make. Well, deep let's move on in the case. Cause I know we, we still have a bunch of other stuff we want to get through. So at some point during the discussion, it, it turns out that Ivan's daughter is the one who's, who's really pushing this. And, She's been working with the whole family to try to change the family's eating pattern. And she also saw the superfood sheet that you brought, which really explains what are legumes, uh, what kind of proteins can we substitute for the meats that we traditionally eat. And the family sort of bought into this. So another quarter goes by and you discover that your patient Ivan um, has been eating a plant-based diet on the weekdays. On the weekends, they may indulge in some of the more traditional diet that they enjoyed. And so you agreed to keep him off medicine. And finally, when you repeat labs, again, his A1C has declined to 6.1% and his LDL is 122. So let's assume between six to nine months have passed from the initial diagnosis until where we are today. From my perspective as an internist, what, what I want to know is what are, what kind of results should we be looking for? How do we establish patient targets? And is there any difference when you're trying to do this through diet versus trying to do it through medication? Because you know, if I had put a patient on a medication and in three months the A1C had only dropped you know less than one percent, I I might change what I'm doing. So how do I view this through the lens of medication that I've been taught to practice? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so Ivan's A1C now, he's made more, he's made pretty significant changes if he's eating, you know, a pretty healthy diet Monday through Friday. Um, that's, you know, five-seventh of his time. <laughs> that's great. Um, and I think that if his A1C has come down, you know, a whole point that way, it's come down from 7.1 to 6.1, and he's not on medication, he's technically in remission now, right? So his his A1C is less than 6.5 off medications for more than three months. That's the ADA definition of remission from, you know, the most recent one. So I think that's fantastic. The question now is how do you sustain this? Like I was saying before, and I think the best factor that we have is that his family's on board. 
And we all know that when you get the family on board, that makes a huge difference. Um, I will often actually have people, have my patients bring, like if they're not the one that does their, prepares their own food or does their own cooking, I have them bring the person who does if they can to the appointment. So they can just hear, even if it's like a three minute discussion, they need to hear it themselves. And a lot of times they have health conditions too. And they're like, oh wait, so this works for this too. And then we end up you know, talking about it. So that can be very effective. It's so empowering to hear you use the word remission to describe hyperlipidemia or, or diabetes. I don't do that. And I think it's something I'm going to take away from today, uh, even in the research for today. But I want to go on to another case of a more motivated patient uh, who initially at least more motivated. So Theo is a 66-year-old newly retired accountant who's ready to get back in shape. He has diagnoses of hypertension, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, and type 2 diabetes. All are well-controlled on medication. In clinic, he weighs 235 pounds, measures 6 foot 1 inch, with a BMI of 31. His blood pressure is 144 over 90, with a waist circumference of 40 inches. He wants to go on the Bill Clinton diet to lose weight and reduce his medication burden. He looked you up online because he saw your super food map, Michelle. So how do you approach a patient like Theo? Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is someone who, unlike Ivan, this patient is coming in already excited about getting, you know, having, having a discussion about dietary change, right? So we're just going to zoom right into it. This is a patient who I would start by saying, I'm so excited that you want to learn about this and I'm excited to talk to you about it. But I also want to be realistic about, you know, his, he expressed that his goal was to reduce his medication burden. Um, And so I, from the very beginning, I want to be very upfront about which medications are on the table for reduction and which ones are not, because I've had people come to me really excited about dietary change and say that they want to come off their statin when it's for secondary prevention, you know, or something like that, where you just wouldn't do it. Or for example, this patient has, you know, heart failure with a preserved DF. Maybe he's on an SGLT2 inhibitor because he also has diabetes. Like that's something you would probably say you probably would continue. So I just want to, I don't want anyone to feel, I don't want any patient to feel like they're, they failed in some way because I'm not stopping their medications when that's their goal. Now, a lot of patients, a lot of patients can reduce, like, you know, there's medications that we all know you could, can, if you dramatically improve your diet and lifestyle, you can come off without any, you know, they don't have end organ damage. They're not going to affect the disease process. So that's the first thing I would say. And then I would jump into the usual. I would say, okay, tell me what you ate yesterday, starting from the morning, you know, whatever time you got up, what did you eat after breakfast, snack, lunch, dinner, what are your beverages and so forth. And then I would, you know, I would start talking to him about really the, you know, we're talking about weight loss, we're talking about diabetes, and we're talking about blood pressure are the really the key things. And so the evidence-based, sort of the hybrid evidence-based approach to that is adding more fiber to the diet, which is, you know, of course, only found in the less processed plant foods. Um, that's going to help with weight loss and, and blood pressure and diabetes. Having more potassium in your diet So eating more fruits and vegetables, that's going to help with blood pressure. Reducing sodium in the diet, of course, for blood pressure. Reducing saturated fats. So that's going to be your your meats, um, your high-fat dairy, your cheese. 
All of that helps with cholesterol and it helps with, you know, improving diabetes and then reducing the added sugars. So I'm going to start to understand what's his dietary pattern. And like, just like with Ivan, only this patient's more motivated, we're going to start setting some goals around what he wants to work on. And he might be able to set more more intense goals. Maybe he maybe he's willing, he's ready to do like I'm going to ref I'm going to you know make over one meal a day instead of just making like having a serving of broccoli three times a week. Like I'll I'm going to work on having a healthier breakfast every single day or a healthier lunch every single day and then go from there. Michelle, I want to you mentioned saturated decreasing saturated fat. So like the 90s fat was bad. We pumped all the food full with sugar to make it palatable without the fat. Now everyone's going keto, paleo, saturated fat, or any fat all of a sudden is good. Uh, so I know this is a bit controversial, but like, how do you answer that? I'm sure patients ask you about this. So like, how, how can we answer when patients are telling us that's what they want to try? Yeah, this is so important. I'm glad you asked it because I think that people get confused around you know, fat and it's not just like you said, it's not about eating low fat. We tried that. You know, we tried. Well, we didn't really do it, but we, we you know, the messaging came out to eat low we fat. We talked a lot about it. <laughs> we talked a lot about it. But just like you said, when fat was taken out of commercial pr- products, refined grains like white flours and more sugars were added. So we were it was even, if not worse. So when it comes to any macronutrient, especially with fat, it's not about how much is in your diet. It's about where you're getting that fat from. Are you getting it from healthier sources are you filling up on nuts and seeds and avocados, olive oil, or are you filling up on bacon, butter, you know, foods that are very, very rich in saturated fat? And if you look at any guideline by any major medical society, they will, and there's so much evidence to support a causal relationship between saturated fat intake and LDL increase. That right there should stop you in your tracks. Like if nothing else, you can you can literally watch yourself if you if you start consuming say a lot of coconut oil. You can just watch your LDL go up linearly. Coconut oil is really high in saturated fat. Same thing with butter. So that's that part's really not very controversial if you're truly looking at the nutrition science. And it also has a huge role in diabetes as well. So as I'm working on my script and I'm thinking, all right, how am I going to approach this patient? So we're going to do our usual stuff. We're going to say, walk me through your day. What'd you eat the last 24 hours? And in this case, Theo's a little bit more motivated. So we may go ahead and break it down for him. You would talk about, Hey, these are better plant proteins. These are plant fats. Sounds like he may have some familiarity with whole grains and you're going through this. But as Watto said earlier, I don't have that much time. So if I don't have well, walk me through if I do and if I don't have a dietitian on staff. Sure. How often do you see this patient back? And let's say on the West Campus of Cashlack, we have infinite time and there's always openings in my schedule. So what's the ideal scenario here? Yeah. I mean, I think if you're able to see the patient back yourself and follow up on the goals that you've set, that would be, it would be ideal to see the patient, you know, once every two to four weeks at the beginning when they're getting started, and then you can space things out more. Um, we haven't brought up dietitians yet, and that's really critical because I think if you can refer to a dietitian, you know, this is, this is an amazing partnership. You tell the patient how much it matters, how much changing their diet matters, 
and maybe give them some tips. And then your dietitian is the actual trained individual who can help them carry that out and make really practical recommendations. For many years, I did not have access to a dietitian on my team at all. It's very recent that we had a dietitian. So I've been doing this all myself. And I will say up until recently, and I will say that the more you start doing it yourself, the more efficient you get at it. And you, you, you really, it does become easier. The other point I wanted to make with what you said is I, I don't talk about macros with patients at all. I don't even use the word fat, protein, or carbs because it's too confusing. If we have trouble understanding it and we're not counting it, like I'm not going to expect a patient to do it. I just talk about the foods that I want them to eat more of or less of. So let's say we have the dietitian and we're doing pretty well. I've read about some physicians uh, monitoring more labs than I'm used to ordering. So typically for a patient like Theo, I would check a lipid panel and an A1C. But a lot of patients have enthusiasm for checking inflammatory markers, hormone levels, vitamin levels, liver enzymes. And at the beginning, we talked about your credentialing in uh, lifestyle medicine versus what I think some of these other labs may be more commonly uh, drawn in, which are integrative medicine and lifestyle doctors. So can you help us distinguish sort of what we have evidence for versus what can be motivational? And finally, if somebody truly goes vegan, what we should be checking in addition to routine labs? Sure. So yeah, I think there's there's a definitely a, a distinction, I think, between lifestyle medicine practice and say, for example, functional medicine. Um, and really the, the point of lifestyle medicine or using lifestyle to help patients get healthier is really just that. It's to focus on the lifestyle changes and it really should not be a lot of ordering of tests. You know, your emphasis should really be on the behavior changes and how can I spend my effort helping you make these changes and understanding your life. So I personally, um, I'm a minimalist. It sounds like you are too. And I will just send, you know, literally what is very um, obviously needed, like repeating an A1C when needed, um, lipid panel, basic metabolic, if I need to monitor their potassium for medication reasons or what have you, and every now and then a TSH. Um, But beyond that, you know, and and I'm not checking much. um, And I really try, my practice is to dissuade people from extra labs that I don't think are evidence-based or needed, or worst of all, are going to be abnormal, and then we have to deal with them, but they're not actually consequential. And I think just monitoring for the metabolic syndrome, you know, do they have sleep apnea or symptoms of it? Like, you know, a fatty liver, blood pressure, waist circumference, like those sort of things. Like you have a lot of data and then just like how the patient's actually feeling is just so much good information that I, I, I don't know how to interpret those. So I don't order them. I do have a couple patients that talk me into ordering them. And we, I just say, just full disclosure, when we, when we get these back, I'm not sure what we're going to do with it, but we'll, we'll work through it together. That's my approach. <laughs> That's great. And Deep, what was the second part of your question for for Michelle? If somebody really does adhere to a very strict no animal component to their diet, Mm -hmm. is there really any risk of vitamin or mineral deficiency? And, you know, what, what is that true risk? And if there is one, how do we monitor for it? Yeah. So I think that, you know, a, 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 Fully plant-based diet needs to be well-planned, just like any diet. So you, you know, I think 
I think because, you know, if you're just eating sort of a standard American diet, you're probably not thinking about vitamins and so forth, but you could easily have, you know, we know for sure that most Americans are deficient in, in intake of certain nutrients. Similarly, when you're eating a fully plant-based diet, for sure, you're going to need to take a B12 supplement. There's no question about that. We don't get B12 from um, plant foods. We get B12 from fortified plant foods, and that's an option, but I just recommend a supplement so you know you're getting enough because you no one should ever get too low in B12 for a long period of time, as we know. The other sort of nutrients to be thinking about, you know, calcium is a big one. And I think in a plant-based diet, there's very, very, there's many great sources of calcium. You just have to, you just have to kind of know how to, um, how to structure your eating pattern around that. So a lot of the low oxalate leafy greens, so the kales, the bok choy, the broccoli, collard greens, we absorb, we absorb calcium from those foods at a much higher rate than we do say from dairy. And then all of the plant you know, the non-dairy milks, the plant-based milks that are on the market, um, the, the vast majority are fortified in calcium and we absorb it the same as we would from, from dairy. So, and I think protein is the other one that people wonder about a lot on a, on a vegan diet. The key here is really you get enough calories, so you're making sure you're actually eating enough food and that you make sure that the food that you're eating is coming from more whole foods. Or if you're using, say, some of the meat alternatives or um, plant-based meats, those are very rich in protein. So you're probably getting enough. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of recommending tofu and tempeh and some of the less processed soy foods, because these foods are very, very high in protein. They're very well tolerated by people in terms of the, you know, if they're just starting out, they don't have a huge amount of fiber where if you're eating like a huge amount of beans, you're not going to feel well, you got to kind of ramp it up slowly. So, and they're very, very good for us um, in terms of um, they're linked to lower risk of uh, breast cancer, prostate cancer, lower cholesterol, and they're just a, they also have high calcium. So, um, if they're calcium set tofu, for example, I'd like to ask just a practical question about sort of access to these types of foods. So, where the specific branch of cash, like where I practice at, like I, I think in general in, in metropolitan areas, the less money you make, the further away you are from access to produce. And I, and I not insignificant proportion of my patients do their grocery shopping at the dollar store or at the bodegas where you have sort of lower cost access to more calorie dense foods. Uh, so that being the case and with sort of you know, like whole fruits being maybe cost prohibitive for some patients or even fighting tofu might be a challenge. I'm just wondering how do you adjust your script or are there any sort of recommendations you make to patients who might um, have a little bit harder time accessing some of the foods that we're, we're preaching tonight? Yeah. So, um, in my practice, and I'm in a, I'm working in the public healthcare system in here in New York, and I, and I've had, you know, many of my patients are living at the poverty level and below, and have very difficult access to, to food. On top of that, so I mean, first of all, it goes without saying that we should, if we're going to be counseling on nutrition, we have to ask about food insecurity. Like that's the first thing you, you have to ask about, and um, you can't assume anything, and you have to find out if someone actually needs food. Period. And then I think, you know, once you establish that they have enough actual food, it's about obtaining um, nutrition security and getting healthy food. So some of the tricks that I often use are like frozen vegetables are great. Um, a lot of people don't realize that they are nutritionally just as good as fresh um, and they are relatively inexpensive and they don't go bad. So those are a great thing for people to have in their in their freezer. Beans, lentils, chickpeas, those are the some of the least expensive foods you could possibly buy. And they're available almost everywhere. And they're also among the healthiest foods you could possibly eat. So those are great. 
definitely with fruit, you know, if you're eating in season and depending where you live, you know, some of the less expensive fruits like the bananas or in some places, apples, like those are great. Um, and you're not, you know, berries can be very expensive. So I'm very sensitive about recommending those if a patient doesn't have access. And grains can also be very inexpensive, like oatmeal, like old fashioned oats is not expensive. Um, so there's a lot that people can do. And again, maybe they're not going to get to the point where they're eating like a fully plant-based diet if they don't have access to the diversity of foods that you would want in your diet that way. But at least they can start making some really healthy shifts. And on the point about some whole grains being very affordable, for diabetics specifically, I know you have made this point in, in other talks and in some of your writing that some of the more inexpensive whole grains, including brown rice, quinoa, oats, whole wheat, and others can be both affordable and actually counterintuitively improve glycemic control. So we're running out of time here, but I think this would be a great area for those of us who are interested to, to read more on our own. Can you just describe that a little bit? Yeah, so I think that a lot of people think about carbs as being the primary problem in, in type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance. When in reality, first of all, carb can mean very different things. It can mean, you know, lentils or lollipops, as I always say, or fruit or fruit loops. So you're, first of all, we're talking about, if we're talking about healthy carbs, those are not the cause of type 2 diabetes, and they're actually part of the solution. The evidence is very clear that when you're consuming a diet that's has healthy carbohydrate foods in it, you can actually help improve insulin resistance. And that's in part because of all the fiber in these foods. Um, it's in part because they're antioxidant rich and they reduce inflammation. They help people lose weight, which we know is really the primary driver of insulin sensitivity. So what I see in my practice over and over is the more people consume these healthy carbohydrates and more, of course, more vegetables and more plant sources of protein, their, their diabetes improves. And then when they eat the carbohydrates, their sugar isn't going as high because they've addressed the underlying issue um, of the insulin resistance. Yeah, one th- and as uh, as ins- continuous glucose monitors become more pre- like easier to get, a lot of my patients are wearing them and they're just like figuring out what foods what foods are spiking their sugar. But I do I do just tell patients, you know, if you're not sure about a food, you can always run the experiment. You know, you can eat it and check your sugar an hour or two later and see see what happened. So I usually ask them to check a postprandial and see what it is. The problem is that that rewards bacon, which is might be somebody, somebody might want that reward. Oh, in my hypothetical, we were talking about, they're like, can I eat cherries? And I'm like, I don't know. Uh, eat some cherries, check your sugar, bacon wrapped cherries, Paul. That's what. Right. right. And you can also lower your blood sugar response to any food by adding some healthy protein or fat. Yeah. So that's a trick that I like to tell patients. If you're having like a really sweet fruit, like you're having mangoes and you know your sugar is going to go up, eat it with some eat a few peanuts or eat a few, you know, with your mango and your sugar won't go as high. So the last question, similar to what we're getting here with the carbohydrate thing, every culture has their carbohydrate that they love. You know, my mom's family, Italian, the white bread, like the crusty white bread, the uh, pasta, some people like rice, tortillas. How do you work with the, with the cultural traditions of people and get them to start eating some of these, you know, we call them green box foods, like the, the ones that, that we've been talking about and trying to push as majority of what people should be eating? 
Yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's really important to honor what people's cultural traditions are. And I'm never in the, I'm not in the business of telling people like, you got to throw your culture out the window so that you can eat this kind of diet. Most cultures have healthy foods, you know, a lot of healthy foods within their cultural traditions. So it's just a matter of kind of finding those. I'll often, you know, I mentioned before, I'm on the interpreter phone a lot. I have patients from all over the world. And a lot of times I'm not that familiar with their cultural background. So I'll literally pull up, I'll be on, you know, I'll do a, a Google search around, you know, what are the basically beans or grains, and I'll see what comes up and I'll have them tell me, which, you know, which of these foods do they recognize and like and, and tell me what's a dish that they like with those. And we start from there. So we're finding the healthy foods within their cultural tradition. A word on tortillas. So tortillas get like the worst wrap. I mean, probably second only to potatoes. I'm sorry, did you say but- the worst wrap? I just had to break in here. <laughs> yeah. That is shameful. Sorry, yeah. carry on. But, but, but tortillas are actually, if they're made from corn and they don't have a lot of additives, they're absolutely, they're fine. It's just the quantity. So, I, you know, I'm never going to tell someone who's, you know, many of my patients from Mexico, for example, I'm never going to say stop eating tortillas. That's terrible. I, I will just say, you know, let's balance your plate. Your plate has to have more vegetables. Let's add some beans to your plate. Let's add some healthy, healthy fat like avocado and have two or three tortillas. And that's absolutely fine. And people get healthier eating that way. Michelle, this has been terrific. And I think all of us have some new scripts we can use with our patients and hopefully some new additions to the treatment plans that we're offering our patients. Is there anything you'd like to say in closing or um, any take-home points you want to make sure you emphasize that you feel like you haven't gotten a chance to yet? No, I mean, I think I would just say I hope that everyone listening has a sense of how important it is that you know, how important our eating patterns are for our health and feels a little bit more interested in perhaps trying talking about this with their patients. And I can guarantee I started from not knowing anything and I just kind of winged it and then learned more as I went along. And it's been one of the most rewarding things I've ever done in my practice. So I hope that people feel inspired to give it a try. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Great. Get your show notes at The Curbsiders. This is a whole food episode, guys. This was your time to shine. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. We're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. You can also email us at askcurbsiders at gmail.com. Yes, Paul, that's a new email address, askcurbsiders at gmail.com. And a reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. I wanted to give a special thanks to our writer and producer for this episode, Dr. Deep Shah. And to our whole team, The Curbsiders is produced and edited by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, Paul, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. Thank you for joining us. Signing off, Dr. Deep Shaw. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, thank you and goodbye. <laughs>